Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Message out of Psalm 119, a segment there. It says, from verse 9 to 16, it says, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great, great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Church, there's joy that's found in obedience. And often that joy leads to worship. So there's a lot that can go wrong with obedience to our own ambition, especially when our our ambition excludes the Lord. Um, I heard a young man say one time that he was trying to find his moral compass. Um, So a moral compass that's derived of our own perception of the world is inevitably flawed. Um, It lacks a bigger picture, especially for youth. In verse 9, it says, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. So on our own, we can't understand how to live a holy life. We can't. We need God's word and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So obedience leads to joy, which leads to worship. But the natural predecessor of obedience is knowledge, right? We have to know God's word to be obedient to God's word. So I advise that if you know anything about God and his word, you ought to worship. I heard, I've actually heard several uh, theologians say that uh, theology precedes doxology. Um, in other words, the more we know about God, the more we ought to worship. So study leads to worship, knowledge leads to worship, and obedience leads to worship. And church, our pastors... If you've been to this church for more than like 20 minutes, you'll know that our pastors faithfully preach the word of God. So you know, if you're a member of this congregation, you know the word of God. You've been taught. So let your knowledge of the word of of God lead you into worship this morning, church. Take a look at our scriptures before we go. Let's go to Colossians chapter 4. Do you ever think about what it would have been like living, living in different times than you live in? Can you imagine that? I can't even imagine or remember what it was like before cell phones now. Anybody else have that problem? But uh, being able to imagine life without I was watching a TV show, and it was uh, set in times before cell phones, and I thought, man, it had been so much easier if they had a cell phone. They could have just called that person and told them, come home or or whatever. But uh, uh, I've I've often wondered what it would be like to live in different times. I grew up uh, going to Sunday school and children's church, and we had these little these little books that were arch books. They had the golden spine, and they had the little black picture in the corner that had, like, the St. Louis arch, it looked like, and arch books, and then it had cartoons of Bible stories. Can anybody relate to that? Anybody have those in your house? Yeah, just a few. Okay. Wow. Rhoda, did you have your hand raised? You had those all the way in Nigeria? Man, those things travel. So uh, anyway, these these um, books, they told Bible stories, and uh, it made you really feel like you were part of the story. So in my childhood imag- imagination, I, I just about said it like I was from Chicago, imagination, 
uh, in my childhood imagination, uh, I could put myself in the story and remember what it was like. You know, Israel would be marching around Jericho, getting ready to shout, and the walls would come down. Or when David took out Goliath, there was a really interesting picture of the rock sinking into Goliath's forehead. If you had that book, we had that book. And uh, maybe you can remember Jesus feeding the 5,000 and put yourself in that that setting there. Um, I imagined that if I'd been there when Jesus was on trial, I would have stood up for him when I was a little kid. I thought that and uh, imagined that I would do that. And I wondered why it was so hard for people to believe, because my problem was that we live so far away, historically speaking, that it seems like it's hard to believe because I didn't see those events happen. I'm only hearing an eyewitness account of those things taking place. If I had been there, though, and what I didn't realize was uh, how religious the world of Jesus' day really was, and that often what got in the way of people following Jesus was religion, religions. They got in the way of people really following Jesus. They, and, and religions can do that. They can get in the way of true religion, a relationship with God through Christ that's based on faith and allegiance to him as Lord and Savior. And I didn't realize that accepting the gospel for those people would turn the world upside down. And it does that. The more I know about the cultures in which the gospel came, the more I realize that the gospel came into a world that had competing ideas that were complex every bit as much as our own. So I don't know what you, how you picture the world of that day, but to me it just seemed like Jesus came on the scene and he's the only one making the offering of some kind of salvation, but that really wasn't true in the ancient world. They had a lot of competing saviors. There were a lot of competing messiahs. There were a lot of promises from the gods that people had to uh, pay their allegiance to or in one way or another buy their favor from. And so when the gospel came, it didn't come into a, a blank slate or into a world where there was nothing else on the offering. It came and as uh, Larry Hurtado puts in his title of his book, Jesus became the destroyer of the gods. Christianity came on the scene, and people who began to believe in Christ began to throw out their household idols. Some of them were traditional and ancestral. They worshipped what's known as Larry's, where they, they offered sacrifices to their ancestors. And when the gospel came on the scene, in those places, people had to quit offering sacrifices. And you can imagine the kind of turmoil that that could cause within families where not everybody's believers. But these are the kind of things the gospel uh, came into conflict with. And when I say that, it might sound like I'm uh, talking about how bad it was. What it does for me is it fills me with hope because I realize the gospel has destroyed lesser gods before, and brought people out of the dominion of darkness before, and straightened out sinful behavior before, and toppled kingdoms before, and that God can do it again in Christ. How many are filled with hope by that? The thought that that God can do it again. I hope you are, because we have precedent, and the precedent is God's track record of what he can do in the future for us. We build our faith upon mile markers like that, and God's done a great thing. So I'm filled with hope. There's nothing wrong with the gospel whatsoever. It can do it again. What made the difference was that there were men and women who were committed to the gospel and to Christ, and they saw their whole lives in service to him and to the gospel. 
Paul talks about here in the book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, which we'll, we'll read a portion of in just a moment. He talks about how his life, he is a servant to the gospel. That's kind of a strange thing, because in a lot of his letters, Paul starts off with Paul, servant of Christ. He uses the, the Greek word doulos, which means more than bond slave. It's like the next level. He's offering himself to Christ as a slave to him, that whatever he wants, Christ wants him to do, he's going to do. But he doesn't do that in Colossians. But throughout the letter, we find him saying again and again in one place that I'm a, I'm a servant or a slave of the gospel, or I'm a, a slave to the gospel for which I'm in chains. So he recognizes that his calling is to do this very thing. And so what made the difference, I think, and can make a difference today is committed Christians who are faithfully proclaiming through their lives the gospel the conclusion I drew when I was a kid was that seeing is believing. But I realize it's not so much the knowing the truth that's hard. It's living out truth when it's costly. That's what's hard. I don't think anybody here would say, I I'm, I'm really don't know what the truth is. Maybe, maybe some are questioning. Maybe there's moments of doubt that come in. But I think we mostly know what the truth is. We don't find believing it so hard as obeying it. That's where often the difficulty comes. Paul sees himself as the servant of the gospel, called by God to make it known. And he had a special mandate from God for this ministry, but he urges all believers to be servants of the gospel, and that comes down to you and me. We need to be servants of the gospel. I don't know if you've thought of it that way. We often relate to the gospel as if it serves us. Uh, we receive benefits from the gospel. We come into right relationship through the gospel. But do you realize that there's a sense in which having received, we then in turn become servants to the gospel? Come on. I know that's maybe not a hearty amen. You're waiting for what I'm going to say, but, but I think it's true. Don't you believe that in some way we are indebted to carry the gospel out with our lives and our voice? And that's what he's talking about. He's, Paul sees himself as that, and he, he calls the church to that kind of thing. The purity of the gospel then is very important because it's the one way in which God is breaking into our world to set things right. He doesn't do it through global domination. He doesn't do it through politics. We can legislate morality, but true morality can only come from a heart that's surrendered to God and his definition of right and wrong. Do you understand that that if we put all of our all of our eggs into the politics basket, we're going to be disappointed. Because it can't do what God can do. And that, that's true whichever side of the political aisle you may find yourself on. The purity of the gospel is important. It's the way God's breaking in. He doesn't do it through global dominion, but through the rule of hearts committed to him. One day he will rule the world in a way that casts all evil out. But the way that he's doing it now is through the gospel preached, the gospel believed, and the gospel lived. The challenge to this uh, in Colossae is that there's competing views of, of what, uh, how heaven and earth work together. And so Paul is concerned about the mixture which is creeping in, mixtures of Jewish legalism and mythology and maybe some Greek philosophy. And I'm kind of covering a lot to bring us up to chapter 4 here. Uh, people were constructing this complicated scaffolding to climb up to God. And, and what they'd done is they brought Christian terminology into it. Does that sound like anything that's happening today? 
okay, in the cults that we, we bring Christian terminology in, but we construct our own scaffolding up to God. We don't have a God that comes down anymore. We have a, a ladder to heaven that we have to climb up. A lot of people are doing that, and that's really the definition of what a cult is, is uh, to find other ways to build scaffolding, getting to God. And they did it in Colossae. It would appear through some kind of angelic hierarchy. There's a worship of angels that's mentioned there, that we can't go directly to God through Jesus. We have to go through a series of angels to get there. And I want to caution us uh, against any intermediary that would come between us and Christ. Come on, it's true, and we do it still. We do it through priests. We do it through pastors. Sometimes there's even a concept out there that wives have to go through their husbands. That's wrong. Are you with me on that? That we can go directly through Christ to God. He's our one intermediary between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And so we have to be careful about treating these things as some kind of hierarchy. They did it through holy days, um, rough treatment of the, the body. You can read Colossians and, and see all of this. Rough treatment of the body, which it looks like spirituality, but it's not. I just finished reading this interesting book. It's interesting to me. Some of it was boring, and I, I want to encourage you if you're a reader, every book has a little boring section in it somewhere. If you can persist through that, uh, then maybe you can come out with a reward. But I finished reading this book about the Gnostic Gospels. If you're not familiar with what those are, uh, you may have heard of the Da Vinci Code and, and uh, Dan Brown. He wrote this book, The Da Vinci Code, and there was a movie about it. And the whole uh, premise of that is that um, the Catholic Church has suppressed some of these other Gospels that are out there that tell us what true Christianity is like. And, and so this book was written by Daryl Bach, and he's talking about the differences and how we have such an earlier tradition than all of that. And that if you start reading those things, you'll find out one thing is that they're weird. The Gnostic Gospels are weird. And they change the message. And they do it in a certain uh, amount of ways. One is that they don't deal with salvation the same way. They're late. They're weird. They're not like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they don't deal with sin in the same way. Sin is ignorance. It's not something wrong that we've done where we violated the law of God. They denigrate women, that uh, women, in order for them to become true Christians, have to elevate their masculinity somehow. That's wrong. Uh, They treat creation as evil. You have to escape this creation. They treat spiritual knowledge as a secret that's only revealed to a few uh, of the chosen. And then they get to the nature of Christ wrong. And it would be like taking... um, the beliefs of the Latter-day Saints and saying this is what all Christians believe to do what they've done with that. And the reason why I bring that up is because it's so important that we understand the true gospel because it's powerful and it's liberating and it's public. The whole idea of the gospel is not to go hide it in a corner. It's to bring it out where it can be seen. The Gnostic gospel say, no, we want it. This is some hidden secret knowledge only for the few. But that's not what the gospel is like, and this brings us square into our passage today. Paul is in prison, and I think it's here. Uh, We don't know exactly, but there's a good reason to believe that Paul has never uh, visited this church at Colossae. He uh, isn't the one who founded the church at Colossae. 
he's writing this letter because he's heard about them because one of his converts, Epaphras, which is short for Epaphroditus, has led these people to the Lord, and he's been encouraged because he's been in prison that he ought to write and encourage this group of believers, and so he does, and he wants to one day visit them. And these are the instructions that he gives about how to live in light of the return of Christ. We know he's talking about in light of the return of Christ because he, he mentions several times in, in the letter that we're to do things like set our hearts and minds on things above. Chapter uh, 3, verse 4, Christ is, Christ's appearing. It talks about Christ's appearing. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him. In chapter 3, verse 24, it talks about the reward of inheritance. In chapter 3, Verse 25, it talks about repayment of behavior by the Lord who is the impartial judge. And so Paul has on his mind that Jesus is coming back. And so he turns, as he does in all of his letters, to this practical aspect of how to live as a Christian. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 4. He's talked about some household rules, how we should treat one another within our homes. And then he comes through that in verse 2 of chapter 4, and he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open the door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So he gives us a couple uh, easy statements here, and then we're going to dive into it. One is we need, as Christians, we need to be people of prayer. We need to pray. Okay? Uh, we all know this, right? Like We could probably just say, that's true. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get to praying. But let me talk about how he, he calls us to pray. This is the first call of the Christian life is to pray. As we respond to Christ in repentance and faith, we need to have a living connection to God. And that comes through a life of prayer. If you're not a praying Christian, you're not a healthy Christian. Come on, isn't that true? Think about it. If we're not talking to God, where's our lifeline to him? Certainly it's there through Christ, but he's invited us to call upon him in prayer. It's the privilege and the expectation of relationship with God that we be people of prayer. Prayer does several things. Let me uh, illuminate some of those. One is prayer calls upon the resources of God to change circumstances. Aren't you thankful that when we think it's a dead end, it's not a dead end because we have a supernatural God. Supernatural means that he can act from outside of nature and invade nature and change circumstances for our good, for the good of his cause. Okay? It's not, he's, he's not violating the laws of nature because he's the one who wrote the laws of nature. Okay? That's a common misconception. When God does a miracle, he violates the laws. He doesn't violate them because he wrote them. What he does is he adds another piece of information into the mix. It's a miracle. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Miracles, a Preliminary Study. It's a really good book if you're interested in reading and hearing more about that. But God intervenes, and so we pray. The other thing that happens, which may be even more important than God changing circumstances, is that when we pray... God changes us, right? Something happens in prayer that we can't quantify, that we can't somehow sit back and say, I'm, I'm changing. Anybody remember your, your growth spurts? 
Some of you didn't have much of those. But anybody remember your girth uh, your girth sprouts? <laughs> remember your girth sprouts, your your uh, growth spurts. <laughs> I almost didn't get out of that one. I almost didn't get back to the normal way of saying it. That's what I meant. But what occurred to me is that I didn't know I was growing. There were there were growing pains that were taking place, and this happened when I was 14. I went from being a little kid to a big kid in 14, and so. I didn't notice it because it was happening while I was doing other things, like sleeping and eating, which I did a lot of. You remember those big bowls? I don't know what size bowl this is, but those big bowls your mom has for mixing things, I used to put cereal in that and eat out of one of those bowls. It's just more convenient than pouring milk 15 times. So when I was eating, when I was sleeping, when I was doing other things, I was growing. And I didn't realize it except my pants kept getting shorter. And my mom did too. And I think maybe there were two things happening there. She was actually getting shorter and I was growing. So we passed each other like ships in the night. So there's growth that takes place, but you don't always feel it. And when you pray, you don't feel the change taking place within you, but it does. Sometimes you do feel a change because God is calling you to make a big decision that it's going to change the course of who you are, the nature of who you are, because you surrender to him in a new way. But a lot of times, just by being with him, you're being transformed into his likeness. And it's his plan to do that. And so prayer is very, very important. Paul says here to these believers who uh, are living in Colossae, uh, he's saying to them, you need to devote yourself, yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. This word for devote means to continue steadfastly, as the ESV puts it, or the Rise English Bible says persevere in prayer. I like devote because it suggests that there's some kind of um, loving quality about this praying, that we want to devote ourselves to prayer, that we should want to devote ourselves to prayer, that it's not a, a commitment of resentment, like God's asking us to pray, and I, I hate that. No, it's, it's like this call to, to recognize, here's something good. Why would you not want to devote yourself to consistently do this? Pray, pray, and we can see it in several uh, ways. The Loanida's Greek lexicon says this means to continue to do something with intense effort with the possible implication that there's difficulty in doing it. Okay. And here's the other thing that we've been kind of swirling around for a few weeks is that sometimes when God calls us to pray, it's not always enjoyable. It's work. Can anybody say amen to that without feeling under condemnation? But it sometimes is work to pray. We're, we're doing some kind of a spiritual work in praying. And it takes effort and it takes intensity and we need to be invested in doing that. Not everything that God calls us to uh, means that we're going to do it all in his power so that we feel no um, strain or tiredness or weariness from doing it. When we do what God calls us to do, I can tell you from experience, every Sunday after I preach, my brain is fried. Right? Yeah, we go to lunch, people talk to me. I'm like one of those chickens that have been bred for food that have no nothing going on. Their eyes are... <laughs> blank, looking out at you, you know there's nothing going on there. (laughs) 
and that's me after Sunday sermon. Um, so, and and probably some of you have felt that same thing that there's when you've done the work of God, there's a weary satisfaction. You feel the satisfaction of having done what God's called you to do, and you're ready to go home and sleep in peace. But I got to get some food in me first. So there is a weariness to that. So he says, devote yourself to prayer. Do something with intense effort, even though it may be hard. Uh, Bauer, in his, uh, in his lexicon, says it means to busy oneself with prayer or be busily engaged in. And then uh, Lytle and Scott persist obstinately in prayer. I like that. Anybody have a little stubborn streak in you? You know that God can use that for a good thing. He can use your stubbornness by changing a few letters and calling it steadfastness. You can be using your stubbornness in a way that's redeemed. Okay, If you have stubbornness, all stubbornness is is a virtue that's been turned to a vice. The virtue is steadfastness. Turn it around and use it for God and stubbornly persist in praying that I will pray. God's Word tells us to pray without ceasing, uh, to pray continually, to pray devotedly, as we read here. This is prayer which perseveres. A, A life of prayer should not be one where we just pray in moments of urgency. It would be an abuse of the privilege to pray if only there's an emergency. Are you hearing what I'm saying is that prayer ought to be more than just, oh, no, there's trouble. Now, don't misunderstand and go to the opposite extreme. I'm not saying don't pray when there's trouble. I'm saying that our life of prayer ought to be more than that. We ought to pray when there's not trouble and when there's trouble. Both. Can you get on board with that? That pray when there's trouble and pray when there's not. It's just that when the trouble comes, we feel the extra poke. We need to pray. But when it doesn't, we're kind of left to our disciplines. Where are our disciplines in all of that? Are we, are we stubbornly persistent or do we persist obstinately in prayer? It's a misunderstanding of prayer which suggests that we can only pray once for something. Otherwise, it's not believing God. That's, it's, it seems to make sense, but it's not what the Bible teaches. Prayer as the Bible sees it is being, able, uh, being about the business of prayer all the time, consistently, that we're talking to God. You can do that while you're driving. Just keep your eyes open. Okay, don't feel it. You know, uh, the whole idea that you've got to bow your head and close your eyes and fold your hands, that's something that we did, I think, to get kids to be quiet so that we could pray. But watch when Jesus prays for the meal of the feeding of the five thousands. He opens his eyes, he looks up to heaven, he shouts at the top of his voice, and I can imagine him extending his arms out. It's everything opposite of what we would consider how one ought to pray. There's not a physical pattern for prayer. You can be driving in your car and praying. You can be having a conversation with somebody, and in your mind, I know we're going to maybe have a discussion about whether it ought to be verbal or not, but I think that petitions can go up to God as we think. We call on God. Now, ideally, it's, with, it's done with the mouth. Some, though, cannot pray in this way because our hearts are far from God. Maybe some can't pray because we hold in our heart a cherished sin, and it keeps us from 
enjoying his presence because when we get in his presence, we constantly feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit until we take care of that thing. And maybe for others, we have other priorities which seem more important to us, like acting or doing something seems far more important than praying, but it's not. Uh, God wants us to both work and pray, so both are important. And then others maybe wonder what difference it would make to pray. But God tells us prayer is important and it changes things. I to trust him on that. If something is hindering your prayer life, I would encourage you to do something, to talk to God about it. If something's hindering your prayer life, talk to God about it, which is praying. And you get yourself right back in, deal with it with him, and you'll have already begun to pray. So he says we ought to devote ourselves to prayer. And then uh, he uses a semicolon here. Or we don't have that in our Greek text, but we have it in our English text. Devote yourselves to prayer. And then when you see like a being watchful and thankful, um, these are participles which explain how to devote yourself to prayer. So he's going to tell us how we devote ourselves to prayer. And the first thing uh, he's going to say is after we, we started praying devotedly, we need to pray watchfully. What does that mean? Watchfully. That means in a, at, least a, at least a spiritual sense, we need to pray with our eyes wide open. Okay? I don't mean that you can't close your eyes, because sometimes it's good to do that to get out of distractions. Um, I have to, when I study, shut off certain lights in my office, or I'll look at the books on my shelves and get distracted, because that is me. Okay? Sometimes it's good to close your eyes so you can pray. But what we're talking about here is being alert in a way to the things of God. Okay, New English translation says keeping alert instead of watchful. You have watchful here in NIV. Keeping alert. Loanida says this is uh, literally it means to stay awake. But used figuratively, it means to, in, to be in continued readiness or alertness. Okay, So stay awake as you pray. And, and I don't just mean... Literally, stay awake. That's good, too. When you pray, it's good to be awake when you're praying. One time I did pray, kneeling beside my bed, and I woke up, and I was still praying. And I don't know what I said in that intermediate time. I'm just thankful I have a high priest through whom that prayer goes, that he can change it if there was anything wrong said. Lord, forgive him. He was, Father, forgive him. He was sleeping. But uh, we need to stay awake in, in the sense of alertness, be watchful, be on the alert, be alive. And what is it that we're watching for when we pray? Well, I think there's a couple things that it could suggest here. Notice it says, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful. Um, we could be keeping watchful for the times to see what times we're living in so that we know how to pray. Or for people watching their lives and knowing how to pray for for different people. Or it may be that when it says, uh, be watchful, be watchful for what God is doing for his kingdom to come or the return of the Lord. But what I really think he has in mind here, now this is going to sound unspiritual, but it's not, is that he wants us to keep watchful for the answer. Okay? So be prayerful and watch. Why? Because if we're not paying attention, God can slip answers in and we don't even notice them. I can tell you that in my experience, there have been times I prayed for something and then it goes off the prayer list because we forgot about it because God answered. Anybody else have that experience where you just, you forgot that God actually answered that? Oh yeah, 
He answered, be watchful. And I, I think this is the case because of what he says next. And be thankful. Thankful is, is giving thanks to God for when he does answer. Be watchful. Be prayerful. Be watchful. Be thankful. Okay, so we watch for what uh, comes in terms of the answers. And then he encourages us to be thankful. So the intercession, the watching for answers to prayer, and the thanksgiving then when the answers appear is what I think he's after here. We can often forget once the answers come because there's always another problem that we need to pray about that begins to take our attention. And that can happen easily enough. Some people like to keep a journal of prayer requests and answers. I don't do that, but it's a good idea. If uh, you're wanting to keep in mind and follow this out, keep a journal of what uh, God's done. And I think you'll go back over the years, and you might be amazed at how he's answered prayers. He does answer prayers. Sometimes we uh, forget or we don't realize it. So then, Paul, after encouraging people to general a general life of prayer, he starts to focus it in on what really matters to him as one called by God. Okay, and what do you think matters most to a servant of the gospel? He wants the gospel to be known. Notice, Paul wanted people to pray for the advance of the gospel. And he mentions a few things here. So let's follow on down here where he says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains and pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So Paul is in prison. We know that this is one of the prison letters he wrote. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Philemon was a twin letter. It's not twin in the sense of size, but uh, it goes along with Colossians to the church at Colossae to a man named Philemon who's in that church. And so there's two letters to Colossae. One's to an individual, the other's to a church. And Paul is writing from there, and he's his concern is, God has called me to make known this mystery of the gospel, this saving knowledge of Jesus, but I'm locked up. And so he's asking this church to pray for him. And Paul's not locked up because he's murdered somebody or, uh, you know, he stole a car or anything like that. Uh, He's there for the sake of the gospel. Paul is in prison because he's been faithful to the gospel. And you can follow some of the the line that that follows his uh, journey in the book of Acts through... uh, Jerusalem to Caesarea and, and on until he gets to Rome. And, and there, from there, he writes the prison letters. And so he's writing here for them to pray for him. And, and notice what he wants them to pray. And this is interesting in light of his circumstances. He's praying for an open door for the message. Are you with me? I'll pay close attention to this. An open door for Paul? Not so much. He's praying for an open door for the message. The irony is, is that he's locked behind a closed door. But what he doesn't want to have happen is for the gospel to be shut up and chained up in a particular place and not let out to unleash the blessings of God on humanity as they turn to him in repentance and faith. He doesn't want that. So he prays for an open door for the gospel. And and actually, the the Greek here says... Uh, pray for an open door for our word, our word. His word is the word of the gospel. So Paul's in prison, but he 
wants them to know that the gospel needs to continue to go forth. And so pray for that. And the encouragement comes with this little letter, as I said, of Philemon to uh, to the church at Colossae. So the gospel continues to ring out while Paul is locked behind closed doors. He wants the gospel to have an open door. And here's the interesting thing is today, what year is this? <laughs> 2022? Okay. About 2,000 years later, the gospel still is unchained. There's still an open door that's uh, ministering to us today. I, I'm hoping we're receiving it. Notice uh, a second thing here. He's praying. He's asking for prayer because of the obligation that he has to proclaim it clearly. Okay, and so this is there's there's an inference here that we need to draw is that for the gospel to be made clear, that needs the prayers of God's people. Because it's a tricky thing to communicate person to person. Anybody who's married knows that. You say one thing, your your ship's passing in the night in a different way. Anybody had problems with communication? Anybody not had problems with communication before? Something misunderstood, not misunderstood. We, we know that it's when it happens right and communication on, happens on a true level, yes, success. It's wonderful. When it doesn't, uh, it can be really frustrating to try to communicate. We're speaking the same language. We're both from the same area. How can we not get this? That's not our problem, but there are people out there that have that problem. So I'm just speaking about something that I read. Yeah. But Paul here is saying, pray for me that I may proclaim it clearly. Clearly is to cause something to be fully known by revealing it clearly in some detail. And so what Paul needs to do is take something that, especially in a Gentile setting, would have been hard for people to understand and make it clear. And thankfully, the gospel is clear enough. It can be said in a few simple ways. But then it's also complex because we can spend our whole lifetimes delving into what this means. Do you, do you understand what I mean by that? that? That salvation is something that grows with us. It's like Alice shrinking down to go through the little door only to find there's a huge world there. And that as we enter in as children... Kelly Brake talked about that last week. We come as children. We still have to live dependently upon God like children. We still find that there's a vast world that God lives in that that can command our attention for an eternity. You know, the our salvation, it talks about angels longing to look into the things that we know through Christ. It's like they're peering in from the outside going, I wish I could understand what it is that you understand. And as we grow in Christ, we find it to be more wonderful all the time. We find there to be greater depths to this. I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, there's no excuse for being bored with God. He's fascinated enough. I need to hurry on here. He talks about this being the mystery. Notice uh, this is going to be verse 4. Actually, we'll want to back up to verse 3. That we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains, the mystery of Christ. So to make it clear, this isn't um, in any way saying that the gospel has to be fuzzy or unknowable. I think the basic tenets of the gospel 
um, and I think Paul would agree with this, and I hope it's I hope it's scriptural. People can understand what the gospel is saying, applying it to their lives without the Holy Spirit. That's near impossible. Okay, but you can understand the basic tenets. It just seems nonsense to the unbeliever because they're not looking at it from a heart of repentance. Okay, but it's not difficult. It's not hard to understand. There are mysteries within this, but when he says mystery here, when we think of mystery, we think of maybe Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes or something like that, where there's a story that's being told that we have to uncover. We have to go in and and through deduction, we have to figure out what it is that's being kept from us. Who's the murderer, right? Well, uh, when it comes to that, that's the new definition. I think it borrows from the old definition, we think of something that has to be figured out. That understanding is more recent. But when Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel, he's using it in the old way. The old way, the old Greek word mysterion, means something which was hidden in the past, but which is now revealed. Okay, And in Colossians, he uses it four times. In the rest of his letters, including Colossians, 17 times total, he talks about the mystery of the gospel. In verse uh, 1 of 20, uh, 126 of Colossians, the mystery hidden in ages past, but which is now disclosed. In chapter 1, verse 27, God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery. In chapter 2, verse 2, my goal is that they may know, know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Okay, so what Paul is saying here is that the gospel is not something to be hidden or to remain hidden. It's something that's to be unveiled and known. Okay, how does that happen? How is the gospel known? Do we show a picture of Jesus? Do we get bumper stickers on our car that say, I'm not perfect, just forgiven? How is the gospel known? It's told. Okay, it can be read. People can read about the gospel. But I would suggest to you that the gospel has to come in words. It's not enough to have a picture. It's not enough to have a movie about it. The gospel needs to come in words. Because only then can we explain what Christ has done. I I would encourage you to think of, of this. Paul says, I need to make known the mystery of the gospel. Make it clear as I should. He says, I should. It's an obligation to make the mystery of the gospel known. So he's saying, pray for me. Pray, watch, thank, and pray for us, too, that the gospel will be made known, that I can make it clear that an open door will come. How do we apply that? I think in our day, what we need to do is we don't need to pray for Paul anymore. He's with Jesus. His uh, journey is done. We're still benefiting from his ministry, but his journey's done. We need to pray for us. Come on, anybody with me? Anybody want to make the gospel known a little bit more with your life? We need to pray for the church that it would come with clarity. If you're frustrated by the the density, and I don't mean that in the sense of having weighty issues, but if it's just not clear in my preaching, I would encourage you, pray for me, because I need it. This It's hard to communicate the gospel. You need to pray for yourselves. If you're parents, you've got to take this, this vast salvation that you have, and you've got to filter it down and, and tell it to your kids. We've got a responsibility here to communicate the gospel and to make it clear, right? That's how we pray. That's how we pray nowadays. We're praying, for, praying it for our church, for our missionaries, 
for ourselves. The second big word, and this will go much quicker if we can all breathe a sigh of relief, is we need to represent. We need to represent. It goes along with praying for what we just talked about. Paul says in verse 5 and 6 here, he says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer anyone, everyone. Okay, So let's remember who it is that we represent when we talk about this. Uh, Janie used to work for a pizza place back in the day. And so serving pizzas, she can tell you a story about how she dropped a pizza on one of her teacher's kids that came into the restaurant. That's for another day. But uh, Sunday night after church, the church people came in to the pizza restaurant. And uh, they made the worst mess. And they tipped very little, if at all. And uh, she was, uh, well, that just left a bad impression. Like, that's what that's the way church people are. She didn't grow up in a, a home that followed Christ. And so the impression then is, this is what Christian people... They're messy and they're cheap. What's, what's attractive about that? So I would encourage us, let's remember who we represent. She was telling me recently about uh, going trick-or-treating when she was a kid. And, uh, you know, there was no, no conviction in their house against doing that. So they went and she said that uh, she knocked on one door and an old man came out and he yelled at them for doing such a wicked thing as going trick-or-treating. And you may you may feel the same way about Halloween, that it's a, a wicked thing. But I ask you, if that helped anyone come to know Jesus, did that help anybody come to Jesus? No. Uh, she went away thinking that that man is mean, and she didn't know why anybody would consider it wrong. And if he's talking about Jesus, where's that put him? So here's the point that all of this is making is that, you know, she thought, she could have thought Christians are mean and cheap. And it's a wonder that she became a Christian. It was probably because a kind friend invited her to a church event. And when the invitation came, her kind friend said, I'll stand with you. It wasn't the meanness that draws people. Yeah, we need to stand up and speak the truth. And there are times that we have to say hard things that people won't understand. And they will misinterpret our intentions and our message. This is really inevitable because the gospel confronts fallen human flesh, and we don't like that. But we don't need to add to the scandal of the cross by meanness. Come on, true? And I'd like you to think about something. If they're gonna, There's plenty of reasons that people reject the gospel. Don't let yourself be one of those. So these are these next verses remind us that we're representing Jesus to outsiders. Verse 5 says, be, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. The word for act here is, is the word walk in, in the Hebrew mindset, and Paul is drawing from that. When you live your life, you're on a journey. You're walking. So he said, be wise in the way you walk. It means be wise in the way that you lead your life. We have to live with distinction from what's wrong, and I think there's something beautiful and winsome about virtue that can be seen. Okay, this, is, this is one of the most winsome things about the church, but 
we so blend in with our culture and we so mirror our culture that sometimes meanness comes out. And I'm going to tell you, growing up in Pentecostal churches, sometimes we, take the, we play the spiritual card that because I'm right, I can be mean about it. And Paul says, no, can't, can't be mean about it. There are times you have to say the hard thing, but we ought to be gentle and kind about how we do it. How to be wise is, is the intention here, to show our virtue. The distinction means refusing to compromise, but, but also recognizing that we may win some by our godly living. That we be honest and humble and gentle and true. These are really attractive qualities. Even to the world, they may make fun of goody two-shoes, but generally speaking, there's reverence and respect for an individual who lives with them. So if you are good, I think your goodness will preach. Right? How, we, how to be wise is further defined by making the most of every opportunity. Paul has in mind making the, the gospel known. He has in mind somewhere the return of Christ. So when he says make the most of every opportunity, it's literally redeeming or buying up the time. If you look at the Greek word there, it's not opportunity, it's time. Buying up the time. Okay? Using time in a valuable way. Make the most of every opportunity. It means redeem, redeem the time that you have. Use it probably here specifically for witness. When you come into contact with people, be looking for opportunity to share Jesus with them. It's not easy. It's not. I know, and it, we get scared that we're going to alienate people, and we don't want to drive them away. We don't want to say the wrong thing. And sometimes it's good to have those thoughts to to realize we can't just come in like a bull in a china closet and, you know, just I know the truth, and here is the truth, and everybody get on board. Yes, know the truth. Have the truth. Hold on to the truth. Proclaim the truth. But it also matters how we do it. Be wise, making the most of every opportunity. In light of the next statement, it seems that Paul has our witness in mind. Verse 6, let your conversation always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. So here he's talking, he talks about going from your lifestyle, which ought to be part of your witness, to conversation. Sometimes we like to lean on that phrase, I can't remember who said it, uh, preach the gospel by all means, and if necessary, use words. We like to lean on that, that we don't have to say anything. Well, we do have to say stuff. We need to speak up because they can see your life all day long, but if you're not telling them what it's about, what benefit is that? If we don't communicate Jesus in one way or another, it says, let your, your speech be always full of grace. Does grace here mean be full of the message of God's grace towards people, or does it mean gracious? Let your speech be gracious. And, and there's difference of opinion among the, um, the commentators on this. They're not sure which, and, and many think that there's a double intention here to show the grace of Jesus through your speech, but also to communicate the grace of Jesus. That makes sense. Okay, It's the content and the character with which we do it. Okay? If we have, you, you remember hearing, I think Marshall McLuhan said, uh, the medium is the message. If you're hateful and harsh and you talk about grace, how far is that going to go? Like right over here. Sometimes you preach a message and you feel like it 
you have to slub, shove the sludge off the edge of the pulpit. It makes it about that far. And maybe that's what happens. So he's talking here about your message, your conversation being with grace seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. This suggests that people may ask you questions, and so you need to answer them in response to the questions they ask. Like Peter talks about, be prepared to give an answer to those who ask you for the hope that you have, and, and then about the walk that you have, as mentioned above here. Why are you like that? Why are you so good? Hopefully that'll come up, and you can say, it's because I'm trusting in Christ as my Savior. Check this out. This next part, uh, I, I quoted it here from the New Living Translation. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you'll have the right response for everyone. It says seasoned with salt there. Seasoned with salt means that you flavor the message for that person. Okay, The gospel is the same gospel for everybody. Some people need to hear different aspects of it. You know, Certainly, the cross should be included. Repentance needs to be included. A call to faith needs to be included. But the Holy Spirit can lead you into an individualistic witness for each person so that you know what to say to them. You've, if you have kids, you know that you can deal with one child in one way, but if you deal with the other child in that same way, it's not going to turn out the same. I know that because me and my brother are polar opposites in most of our personality. And my dad could go at him in a certain way, and challenge him, and they had their relationship, and my dad knew how to deal with him, and he had to deal with me in a different way. Can, can you relate to what I'm saying is that each person, this seems to make it difficult, but you're not doing it alone. You're relying upon the help of the Holy Spirit to witness to people, and he knows exactly what that person needs. And if you follow the Holy Spirit, he can give you, this is going to sound weird to some, he can prophetically give you what needs to be said in that moment. He can help you. But notice it says that you may have the right response for everyone. Sometimes we think of communication as all that matters is that I know what I mean and I said what I mean. Okay? But if you're speaking English and somebody else is speaking German, you can say it all day long, and unless the Holy Spirit interferes, there's not going to be any communication. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 14, doesn't he? It's like a trumpet blaring. If nobody, nobody says any words, what benefit is it? And so he's talking about tongues need to have interpretation for that, for that very purpose. Okay? So even when we speak in English, sometimes we just know what we mean, and it doesn't matter whether they know what we mean. We know what we mean. So they need to get on board. Okay? Listen. This verse is telling us that we need to season it with salt so that the other person can understand in the way they need to hear it. Do you hear what I'm saying? Is that we have to consider not just what we mean, but how to say it so that it will be received. That's important. And that calls for an extra step of love. We know we'll say, well, we're speaking the truth in love just by speaking the truth. Speaking the truth in love means that we're taking it to that level of saying, how can I communicate this to you in a way that you'll understand. That may take a lot of thought. You might have to think about your neighbor that's curmudgeony that lives next door. They don't want to know Jesus. You've been trying to witness to him. You feel a burden for him. You might need to think and pray long and hard to know how to 
respond to them and share the gospel with them. And that's part of your Christian love and witness to them. Okay, let your words always be with grace, seasoned with salt. I like salt. I like a lot of salt, actually. It's probably too much. It's too salty sometimes, but um, the point is that it gives great flavor, and it makes something that would just be unpalatable, palatable and enjoyable. So that's God's call to us. Suggest that it's not enough for us to speak the truth. We have to speak in a way that would matter to them. And folks, it's not enough just to point out people's wrongs. Are you with me? Several years ago, we had a preacher come, and he was recommended to us by another pastor that we knew. And his his uh, job was to go on the college campuses and tell people that they were uh, fornicators and whoremongers and greedy and idolatrous. And so he would find the highest point he could, climb up in a tree if he had to, and shout, y'all are a bunch of whoremongers and fornicators and sinners. And I'm not saying that God couldn't ask somebody to do that, but here was a bunch of people that probably had no clue of what the gospel was even about. All they know is there's an angry guy in a tree yelling at them. I wonder how much more effective it would be for a close friend or somebody else called that came and shared the love of Jesus. Wasn't afraid to confront wrong because we have to come to that. Folks, I'm not trying to water down the gospel and say it's just an easy gospel. We never have to deal with sin. We do. But remember what Paul says in Romans. It's the kind of, do you not know, man, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance. It's his kindness. Let's be that kind of witness for Jesus. We need to be praying. We need to be representing. How's that for a mess? We could have said that in 10 seconds. But I wouldn't feel like we've done our job today until we talked about it in some detail. This is God's call to us. Be representatives of the gospel. Live in a world that's it's complicated. There's a lot of beliefs out there. But you know, the best communication of the gospel is incarnational. Don't misunderstand me. None of you are Jesus. You're not a Messiah. Okay? But you are Jesus' representative. You're the body of Christ collectively as we reach out to the world. And so incarnational witness is so much better as when we come, we share our lives with people and we reach out. And uh, I've gone long enough today. I want to invite you today. Maybe you, you have somebody on your mind that you've been thinking about. You'd like to see. You'd like to share the gospel with them. Maybe you're scared. Maybe you don't know the words to say. Maybe you're waiting upon the Lord for that. But you just like to say, Lord, I want to I want to be a better witness with my words. Maybe today you realize that. In many ways, maybe you've harmed even the gospel by your words. You've alienated people and pushed them away. It'd be good to say to the Lord, God knows that we're frail and we're human and that we sometimes in our best intentions do it wrong. And he chooses to use us anyway. Maybe we need to say to him, Lord, I haven't done it right. Help me to do it right. Forgive me for that and help me to get on and do the right thing in communicating the gospel. Maybe there's some here today that you're saying, I need to get on the ball with prayer. I've been, I've been lazy or I've been uh, making excuses or I've been too busy or whatever. But I need to pray. I need to spend some time in prayer. And maybe today you need to say, Lord, uh, I need to be praying more about 
the advance of the gospel. I've made my life and my prayers about too many temporal things. And I want to pray for some eternal things. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention. These are moments of response. The altar is the edge of the platform here if you'd like to use it, or you can make an altar at your seat. Could I ask you today, before we go any further, have you ever made a commitment to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Today, you might feel the weight of sin on your life or that you've, you just happen to know, you just know somewhere deep down that things are not right between you and God. I'd like to encourage you with the good news today is that God is not desirous to punish or to judge. He takes no delight in the judgment or death of the wicked. He delights rather in people coming to a place of acknowledging their sin and turning to him. He wants to forgive. He wants to redeem. He wants to reconcile. He wants to restore. And he's made that possible because he sent his son Jesus to take our punishment upon himself on the cross. And so at that, at the cross, there's a great exchange that takes place where he takes all of our sin and our punishment. And in exchange, if we trust him by faith, we get all of his righteousness. We stand in his righteousness. We're dressed in his righteousness because we've acknowledged who we are before him. We've come to terms with what God said about us. So today you can simply say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm turning to you with all of my heart, trusting in you. Forgive me. I want to walk with you. And he'll do that. He'll he'll, uh, do something miraculous in your life today. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.